The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everybody. Hi, welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Leslie Albrecht, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Market Watch. And today on Barron's Live, we will be looking at the darker side of money. And we'll be examining the seamy underbelly of finance, looking at the world of scams, money laundering, and financial crime. We are joined today by my colleague, Lucas Albert. Albert, sorry. (laughs) Hey, Lucas. Uh, Lucas is a financial crime reporter at MarketWatch, and he has the fun task of writing about a lot of uh, shenanigans in the financial world. Um, Speaking of which, uh, I think we have some like semi-new news um, on something that is has not been classified as a crime, but is of great interest to people, which is um, that Sam Bankman-Fried has said he's going to testify uh, in, in front of the House um, as a Financial Services Committee uh, mm-hmm. next week. Um, and obviously, a lot of people, you know, he hasn't been accused of a crime, but there, there's um, he's under investigation and uh, for the FTX collapse. Um, so, uh, Lucas, what, what's your take on, like, it, it's, if he testifies, um, will he come to the U.S.? And also, I think a lot of people are keep saying, you know, why hasn't this guy been arrested yet? Um, what what can you tell us about that? Well, I, I you know, I think the, that is an open question as to whether, you know, they will require him to testify in person or can he do what he's been doing? I mean, he's obviously been very public. He's given interviews. He's been in panel discussions. The guy doesn't seem to take any legal advice to maybe keep keep quiet while he's under he's under investigation by the Department of Justice, you know, the uh, the SEC and a variety of other regulatory bodies. So, you know, he's under a lot of legal pressure. Does he actually have to fly to Washington to do this? I don't know. Well, I, that's probably something that gets worked out between his lawyers and the lawyers for the committee. Can he video in? Uh, it's probably acceptable. Uh, I think they've done that in the past. But, you know, yes, there's a good question. He is currently sitting in the Bahamas, uh, sort of out of immediate reach of, you know, U.S. law enforcement bodies if they if it goes there, um, which goes to your other question is why hasn't he been charged yet? Um, well, this is a massive and rather complicated financial f- fraud Um you know, these things can take some time for uh, the authorities to kind of figure out exactly what happened. I think they're really just at the beginning of that. Um, people sometimes point to Bernie Madoff. They say, well, he was arrested rather quickly. Well, the difference there is that Bernie Madoff basically said, hey, I did it. Put the cuffs on me. He didn't. He never challenged. He basically gave himself in. So um, that's not happening here. Sam Bankman Fried has argued uh, that he, you know, that this was a, uh, an honest mistake. You know, we had bad, bad, uh, accounting, you know, policies, and that's what did it. Well, you know, that's for obviously prosecutors and regulators to figure out whether that's really true. But I would suspect, and this is just my take on it, that if he faces charges, that that will be some months before we get there. Yeah, um, it's definitely of great interest to readers, uh, and we'll be keeping an eye on it, right? For sure. sure. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) So, all right. So today we're going to look back uh, we're going to take cast a, a backward glance um, at some of the wildest, weirdest, and most notable financial crimes and scandals of the past year. 
the name of this episode is This Year in Fraud. Um, so Lucas, what can you tell us? You've been covering crime all year. What are some of the like um, trends and patterns that you've seen emerging over the course of 2022? I think if there's like a rule of thumb with fraud is that if you want to find it, just go wherever the money is and that's where you'll find the fraud. I mean, that's basically it. So like, you know, in 2020 and 2021, it was that predominantly meant, you know, looking at COVID relief programs. That was a huge, I wrote a lot about that last year. You know, there was tons of, you know, frauds being uncovered and prosecuted. This year's been a bit more diverse, um, which maybe makes a bit more sense in the, in the sense that it's like we're in a kind of transitional year, if you if you think about it. The world is kind of clawing its way back to some semblance of normalcy following two years of COVID shutdowns. You know, you've had this huge spike in inflation, which has thrown a lot of aspects of the economy off. And we also have had disruptions caused by Russia's war in Ukraine, which has, you know, created other issues. Um, but if we want to talk about some key areas where, you know, we've seen these financial shenanigans really surface. You start with crypto. I mean, crypto this year was a space that got very destabilized, you know, with the collapse and the crypto pricing. Um, and when that happens, you have destabilization. You have maybe some, you know, obvious frauds that were ticking along fine until now become like obviously apparent that they're there. And in some cases you have maybe bad accounting or, you know, issues that there's very limited regulation around this. Like this all immediately gets a big blinding spotlight shown over it. So that's kind of like one major area um, that, you know, I was writing about. But there's also a lot of like kind of curious cases involving people who scam real scam artists who were targeting people who like face financial trouble, you know, scams around debt and mortgage relief, foreclosure, that kind of stuff. That's always something that sort of pops up in moments of financial instability. And that said, there are also just been some just really odd stories this year that have been very interesting to read, you know, uh, some rather clever, clever characters uh, figuring out new ways to, to part people from their money. Yeah. Um, what are and also I just want to remind the audience that we do take questions from the audience. We have a couple that we'll get to in a minute. Um, but if you have questions for Lucas about crime, um, he can answer them for you. Um, so yeah, speaking of some of these um, these shady characters who who've come up with new ways um, to do to do uh, to get people to part with their their money and um, the institutions they work for, um, tell us about this. Uh, Yale University administrator. Okay. Yeah. This was a great story. I mean, this was actually like, of all the stories I wrote this last year, this was the most popular with readers. Uh, oh, maybe, really? Yeah, That's maybe a little little bit of schadenfreude uh, attached to this. So uh, it involved a, a woman who worked for Yale University Medical School. She was um, uh, like the like chief accountant. I forget her exact title. She was a, not the CFO, but, you know, somebody who was very high up in the finance department. And um, she had over the course, she'd worked in that role for something like seven or eight years. And over the course of that time had uh, uh, like, you know, waylaid about over $40 million that she had done through this kind of scam where she, um, she was able to procure things, you know, equipment for the school. Um, but if it was under $10,000, there didn't need to be an approval by anybody else. So she was buying uh, tablets, you know, which I guess they use in medical. They were, she was arguing, well, I'm ordering these for various studies that were being done. You know, we need the tablets to collect data. So it was all going along unnoticed for a long time, but she was taking these tablets. She said that 90% of what she had purchased was 
fraudulent. So she would take the tablets and sell them on to some reseller in, uh, you know, somewhere else uh, who would buy them, you know, at a low cost and sell them on. And she would have that money steered into the bank account of a, uh, I think it was her boyfriend or her husband uh, was like a wedding photographer. So they had some business, like a wedding photography business. So the money would be steered into there. But basically $40 million went missing, you know, over the course of this. And the school didn't really notice it until it got that big, which kind of makes you wonder. I mean, I know that that's probably, they have a huge budget, but $40 million is a lot. Anyhow, she was convicted or she pleaded guilty this year. And uh, the school said, hey, you know, we're going to, you know, review our, our internal, you know, practices here to try and make sure that this doesn't happen again. I, I hope they come up with a better policy. But that that was a uh, something like that. And there was a, a another sort of similar uh, case also involving, you know, huge money being siphoned out of a, a company um, involving uh, cattle in uh, Washington state. Um, there was a rancher there who had a deal with Tyson Foods. Um, and I guess this goes on. I, I did, this was new to me I, that, that um, they would, they contracted with him. He would purchase cattle and feed them to get them large enough to be slaughtered for meat. Um, but they would lend, lend him the money up front um, and at a, with a, like a, something like a three or 4% interest rate. And when he sold the cattle at auction, he would pay them back and whatever difference he made would be his profit. That was the deal. Um, he did in the course of, I think it was three or four years, he did $2 billion of transactions like this with Tyson, but about 10%, it was maybe a quarter of a billion were what they called a ghost cattle scam, where oh, wow. he claimed he was buying cattle, but he wasn't actually buying cattle. And he was using that money to bet on uh, commodity futures. And apparently was quite bad at that, you know, so he ended up losing all that money. And that's where it all uh, you know, riverboat gambling will uh, get you there sometimes. But so that's ultimately how they caught him. But again, a quarter of a billion dollars kind of disappeared from Tyson's foods before they kind of realized what was going on. Um, he was sentenced, I believe, to like 10 years. or so. He had got a fairly long sentence for this. Uh, but yeah, that was uh, another in that category of, you know, nobody, somebody's not minding the switch, if you will. <laughs> Yeah, and also it sounds like a lot of it comes down to like um, accounting and paperwork at the mm, institutions, yeah. right? Absolutely. Like that, I mean, I wonder, you know, I'd love to like follow up with Yale and see if they change their $10,000 or less procurement notification policy. Like, right. um, so I'm sure at the time they were like, oh, we don't need this uh, extra step. It's burdensome and it's slowing us down. Um, but that's what happens, right? No, for so, sure. For sure. Uh -huh. um, yeah. And in, in yeah. Um, okay, so, and what about, um, you also wrote about this, uh, you, you had an environmental story kind of about a mechanic who um, sold thousands of devices that um, allowed trucks to bypass emissions controls. Yeah, this was a thing. I mean, I had sort of been nominally aware that this was a thing people do, but I didn't realize the scope of it. But um, yeah, people, uh, there, there's a certain group of people who drive, you know, heavy duty, like usually diesel powered pickup trucks. And they're of the mind that the emissions controls that you know are federally mandated sort of sap the the you know the 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 high functioning possibility of the truck. Um, so they you know want to switch off 
that that those controls. But if you do that, if you were to like disable it, your 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 dashboard would like go crazy with lights and sirens saying, "Hey, there's something wrong." Well, so with this guy, he was a mechanic in North Carolina. He wrote a program that you could and like sold like a little box that you could attach that would disable those alarm systems and you know kind of fool the car into thinking everything was fine, even though they'd basically switched off the muffler, essentially, <laughs> or you know the catalytic converter was like taken out of the equation uh, so the car would be belching out i think that the, yes. the prosecutor said like sometimes hundreds of times the legally permissible emissions you know this is like horrible for the environment and he did this for years and he sold millions of dollars worth of these devices to you know i think and i, I think in the the epa says there there's something like 2 million cars that have been tampered with this way in America, not all because of this guy, but you know, that this is a common thing. Um, and, you know, he, I think I forget exactly the outcome of that case. I think he pleaded guilty and was sentenced. Uh, he also wasn't, you know, what they usually get you on this is he was making all this money and not actually putting it on his taxes. Oh, it was right. a, a dark money business, if you will. And so they got him on that too. And said, you know, you have to pay like, you know, $2 million in back taxes and you're going to go to jail for, I, I forget the sentence, but it was, pretty, I think, I think he got a year in prison for this, but yeah, it was, uh, you know, one of those things that, you know, I didn't realize how, how big this was. Yeah. It seems like also, so he, he got a year. It's like the, some one interesting thing about your stories is that the mm -hmm. sentences that people get really seem to be all over the place. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, do you have any sense of like why that is? Or like, I, I mean, some, some of these folks get like, what, like what's one of the longer sentences that you, uh, somebody got like 40 years for something? Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, usually the really like financial crimes, unfortunately, like really the, the sentences tend to be a lot less. I mean, obviously murder is going to get you, you right. know, a much longer sentence, but very, it's very unusual for somebody to get life in prison for a financial crime. It's usually in the single digit years, sometimes we have cases where somebody will get like 11 or 12 years if it's something really egregious, but it largely comes into what the charge is. And there are mm -hmm. like very, very tightly scripted policies on uh, federal sentencing laws. The judges don't have a lot of latitude. There's a, the whole process for sentencing is rather Byzantine, it kind of complicated the applications that the prosecutors make and the defense attorneys make. You know, they cite a lot of different, you know, legal statute uh, statutes, but the judge is sort of bound by, you know, I have to fall within this range. Uh, but yeah, usually, you know, if it's, if they get you on wire fraud, I think that's usually where you see the bigger sentences. But if you're kind of doing like tax evasion, like, you know, you maybe get a couple of years or something like that. Or, you know, if you pollute the air, you get a year. And they don't do they don't do uh, victim in, impact statements for in these kind of cases, do they? You know? um, I mean, not not in the not in the traditional way where you know, like the the they victim shows up in the yeah. court. Yeah, but they yeah. sometimes in the filings there'll be like a letter or some sort of description of like what this meant. Oh right, okay, you know? yeah. Um, okay, so earlier in the year we wrote you wrote about what at the time was like a huge crypto story. It was the crypto couple, right? And I, 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 just, I was looking just now because when they when they got arrested, I think they had like a billion dollars in Bitcoin or what was it? Or it was. Um, so, yeah, this couple, they they were arrested. This was in, I want to say March, February, March. I forget yeah. exactly when, but it was uh, early in the year back when the price of Bitcoin was at peak. You know, it was, it was before. I was just looking. It was like around thirty eight thousand. 
Yeah, no. it was. It was. It maybe not a full, not a full peak, but it was certainly yeah. way higher than than what has happened. And so, they get arrested, um, and they were charged with possessing, you know, a hundred, a couple of hundred thousand uh, Bitcoin worth. At the time, I think they said it was worth three and a half billion dollars. It had been right. stolen in yes. a hack in 2016. But back when it was stolen, it was worth like 70 million dollars. And, yeah. you know, the appreciation was out of control. So they and what was really curious about them is that they were basically just like this fairly young. They were like around 30 years old couple. They lived in lower Manhattan. They seemed sort of like tech startup type they didn't seem like hackers you know they they yeah. it was they were very against type they could have been like a your neighbor or something like that and you know they were charged with this colossal hack i mean they they were actually not charged with stealing the money they just like had the money uh the feds have been tracking this money for years they and they they were able to, to connect it to to the this couple and they they were arrested and you know faced very serious charges the husband was uh uh he was a dual russian u.s citizen oh right yeah so they they and this was right before the ukraine invasion right or no, right like, it was like right when that was all starting yeah, yeah it was like just right like right before that or right around the same time and um you know, he they 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 basically just have not let him out on bail. The wife the wife is out, and she was this rather curious character. They were very online people. If people remember the story. Uh, she had this uh, alter ego as a as a kind of comical rapper named Rosal Khan. It was you know the videos were ridiculous, um, very amusing. But you know it was just you know the 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 juxtaposition of this kind of goofy couple and this like very serious financial fraud. Uh, prosecutors had sort of alleged that they looked like they were trying to, uh, you know, create the groundwork for setting up another life in Ukraine, as it was. They had traveled to Ukraine, I believe, in 2019 and got like fake IDs and, you know, fake uh, uh, bank accounts to, you know, set up there. I guess if push came to shove, they never got there. Um, that case is still ongoing. Like, they're, yeah, they're I was going to ask you. Yeah. Are they in what what are they what are have they yeah. been they're just out of they're not in custody, right? They're well the just... husband is. He's been held without bail all this time. So it's been, you know, cl coming up on a year. Uh the wife is in sort of home detention or whatever oh, monitored, right. you know, release. She can't leave the house, basically. And um, but the the most interesting thing recently is that there was a filing in that case uh where the prosecutors said, you know, there's going to be the uh we're going to admit classified material into this case and we have to create a process uh for which the defense attorneys can review it so they you know they, they had applied to the judge to create some you know where the i guess the you know the the defense attorneys get some clearance and they get to they have to go somewhere to to look at this and you know but it indicated that this there were some national security secrets attached oh, to this case and i don't know what it is nobody's been able to tell me yet i haven't been, been able to get anybody to tell me uh, what that's about, but there was, you know, some something that's classified is involved with this. So it's oh. this case is ongoing, and it's you know, it's, it's still fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Um, we have some reader questions. Yes. Uh, one is um, a, a person who says they work with older people, and they want to know if there's any schemes in particular that they should be on the lookout for. Um. um yeah. I mean. 
older people, elder scams are very, very common. I mean, this is an ongoing thing. Uh, you know, the, uh, there's a whole multitude of things that can come in. Uh, romance scams, you know, sometimes elderly people who are widowed or wi widowers, um, you know, will, uh, you know, they're, they're home alone, they're lonely, they're online, they meet somebody online, um, you know, but it's usually some far-fetched stuff you know, story, the guy's like, I'm working on an oil rig, they can't meet you. It's like, you know, a lot of times they pretend to be like, oh, I'm a retired general or something, you know, they'll have a picture of some handsome guy and they, they just sort of, you know, rope you in. And, and then suddenly it's like, oh, I'm in some financial trouble. Can you lend me $30,000 to, you know, get out of this problem? I'm, I've been arrested or some, mm -hmm. something like that. And, you know, that in this, does work unfortunately um so that's a common one there's another one it's um uh it's like the, the i forget what they call it's like the grandchild scam it's like you get a call or you know hey i'm a lawyer your your grandson's been arrested like i need money to like get him out of jail like you know and they kind of scare the grandparent into this so elder elder people are uh, unfortunately very very much targets on this they'll prey on people's sort of discomfort with technology often or you know loneliness uh, and old older people tend to have more money available savings you know it's been a lifetime of savings and this is a very big problem so basically i think if there's a uh, anything there it's just like if you know if anyone's asking you for money like think about this very hard maybe consult with your children or, or you know talk to somebody else does this seem kosher to you you know yeah. that's what that's the only advice i think i could give but um yes it's a big 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 problem um okay jenny asks what are some red flags for potential fraud that investors can look out for specifically fraud affecting publicly traded companies are there any data sources that investors should monitor well, I can always say that I think the, the the biggest red flag for really any investment is if there's a promise of big and quick returns. Um, right. That doesn't really happen. Um, I mean, I think the classic example would be like Bernie Bernie Madoff. Um, you know, in that case, but you know, in that case, you say, "Oh, well, we can return eight percent a year," which doesn't sound insane. You know, right. I mean, it's possible. It's probably high to do that every single year, but you know that's what they were delivering. And so he was sort of kind of smart in that way that he didn't promise, Hey, give me your money in 90 days. We'll give you 50% back. That's how these things, you know, real Ponzi schemes tend to materialize. So if you're ever, if you ever see something like that, um, you know, somebody's promising something that just doesn't seem, seems like a little too good to be true. Get rich quick. I would turn like walk away, you know? Yeah. Um, publicly traded companies. I mean, these, this is hard. I mean, it's like, you know, it's all, it all comes down to the certified accountants, you know, like, you know, are they do, are they being honest? Is the numbers that are being published correct? You have to have faith that they are, if you're going to play at all. I mean, it's pretty unusual that these are fraudulent, but, um, you know, Enron being, you know, an example of where this ran into, you know, you run into this. I mean, the, that's been the big question now with FTX, obviously not a publicly traded company, but it was like their books were, you know, not, they had a lot of holes in them. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's, and how, how, how big the holes are is, is to be determined, but um, that's sort of the thing, um, you know, that, 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 that these are the kind of thing, the main red flags. Also maybe board governance and like, like, um, you know, who, 
Right. Is, is your board? Do you have a board? Is it? Is it? Right. A, are they um, all insiders? Or yeah. Is it a board? Are they like strong? You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, that's funny because another person is asking about those two stories we were talking about earlier. They're saying Tyson and Yale pr presumably have top-notch Big Four accountants. How could the accountants miss these large issues? Yeah. I mean, the Tyson food one was kind of interesting since they were like lending him the money I mean, yeah. that was part of the process and so I, I presumably when he was taking this money for the ghost cattle and like betting on commodities futures like i guess sometimes he was winning and able to pay it back so they didn't really know as long as they were getting their money at the end with the interest all was fine you know they don't know how he's running his books it's only when he stopped you know when he starts to lose money and is unable to you know pay the money back i guess that's when it comes in the yale one is much more curious to me I, you know it seems inconceivable i mean i don't know what the budget of yale medical university is i assume it's many billions per year yeah. it's a huge institution you know but 42 million just seems like you know that how, how does that get missed you know i mean i guess if you're doing drips and drabs you know five thousand here seven thousand there it is being used to procure things that the school would legitimately procure uh tablet computers you know electronic devices you're going to get away with it for a while i think that that that's the case but 42 million seems pretty egregious I, yeah I, I i i you know yes you would think didn't the yale person like she she spent it on like really like pretty flashy stuff right like... yeah ultimately yeah she took the money and was like buying you know uh Range Rovers and you know, uh, like I, I forget, it was like a Bentley. I forget you know, some fancy cars, yeah. Uh, property, you know, they had like multiple homes that they she owned in Connecticut and I think in Georgia, like some beach house down there. You know, they were she was spending it on you know flashy luxury items, which is also usually how these folks kind of get caught when you start doing that. She was also not filing on, on her taxes, explaining huh. you know, how she had, a, I think, a Ferrari. <laughs> you, know, yeah. like, you know, like you know, that starts to catch the, the IRS's attention, you know, those. Yeah, the IRS, up. man, they, they uh, sometimes they they come through with some some good cases, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, actually speaking of luxury cars, well, tell us about the story about the guy who, um, who tricked people into like handing over the keys to their Maseratis. Oh yeah, this is a good one. This kind of falls into, again, we, what I mentioned before about people facing sort of financial straits and, you know, uh, you know, being, becoming targets for scammers. So in this case, this is a guy, he, he, he offered a business. If you were somebody who leased uh, a high-end luxury car, like a Ferrari or, you know, Bentley or something, you know, you have, you're in your two-year lease, your monthly payment. I don't know what those cars go for on, on a lease, but a lot, you know, it's like, and, uh, you know, you were suddenly like, I can't really afford this. I, I want to get out of this lease. And so this guy, there are companies that do this. Like, we will buy you out of your lease or we'll find somebody to buy you out of your lease. And so this guy was offering that service. It was in Southern California. He had an office, I think, on Sunset Boulevard. Like, he was sort of a dapper, young kind of guy in the high-end luxury car market and uh but what he would do is say oh, we'll take your car i'll cover the the lease costs until we can find somebody to take over the lease but then he would just take possession of the car not pay the lease payment not find somebody to take over the lease but he would just rent the car out and keep <laughs> that money or he would just like use it 
And, you know, ultimately these guys, you know, the, the person with the original leaseholder would suddenly be like, you know, getting notices, Hey, you're not paying your lease here. You know, you're, you're in default. So their credit would get, you know, thrown off their, their, you know, their, their, they, you know, would owe, you know, 10, you know, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. And then, you know, they would have to get the police involved and the they would sometimes find the car and now it would be like, you know, in, in Las Vegas and it would be like damage or would have like, you know, it had miles put on to it that were way above what the lease had sort of intended. They were like park unpaid parking tickets. Like, oh, you know, these cars had just been like abused. And so that guy, uh, he was, uh, he was arrested and, and uh, sentenced to, I believe a few years in jail for that one. Yeah. Oh gosh. Okay. Drew, viewer Drew, you've got a good question. Hmm. He says fraud tends to increase in an economic downturn. So what are you expecting to happen with financial crime trends in 2023 if there is a recession? Well, I think, you know, kind of what we were just talking about, about people who are facing some financial straits, these kind of frauds are going to become I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily. I don't know if the data would support that. They yeah. become more prevalent. They just become right. more apparent. Um, yeah. So there'll be a lot more of this. I, I wrote a story the other day about a, a, a like a foreclosure uh, scam. So people who were you know getting notices, hey, you're in threat of foreclosure. Um, you know, these things get filed with the bank and there was a group of people who would, or sorry, filed in the courts. There would be some documentation that a foreclosure proceeding was beginning. These guys would reach would you know, troll, you know, court pay, court, court systems and find these people, you know, these who are in struggling and they would approach them and say, hey, you know, we can offer a program. We have legal teams that can negotiate with the bank on your behalf. Uh, you know, to get your mortgage payment taken down or, you know, we, or done away with completely. And if we will do this for a fee. And yeah. some people did this. They got, you know, I think over 800 people in, in on this uh, to pay this fee. And, uh, uh, you know, then they just didn't do anything. They just kept the fee, but they would not actually negotiate with the banks. So suddenly the the only thing they would do is that sometimes they would file a bankruptcy filing, like a really bare bones one to just kind of get that process started, which would like sort of stop the clock on any debt collection. But because the the document would be lacking so much detail, it would oftentimes be thrown out. Um, yeah. So what uh, what would happen there is that the person, you know, now is like stops making payments and so like entirely and they become in even worse shape. Uh, uh, and then also because they filed this, you know, preliminary bankruptcy filing, sometimes in some states, uh, it would, uh, uh, freeze up that whole problem. Like you couldn't file again, you know, you, you sort of, mm -hmm. it's like a one shot deal depending on how it was done. So these people would get really screwed. Um, so these kind of things like that, that pops up, you know, people going after, uh, uh, you know, debt and mortgage, uh, yeah. relief things I think would be a very key thing right now. Yeah. I and mean, I think we just wrote a story actually yesterday about foreclosure filings um, starting to surge again. So yeah. something to look out for. Okay, guys, that's all we have time for today. It's too bad because these are such fun stories to talk about. Um, if you ever have any tips about financial crime for Lucas, as in, if you know of one being committed, <laughs> please get in contact with him. Please uh, thanks, <laughs> thanks for being here, Lucas. And thanks for the audience for tuning in. And please join us again next Monday when Barron Senior Managing Editor Lauren R. Rublin and Deputy Editor Ben Levison discuss the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Thanks for listening. Be well and have a good weekend. 
The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.